So that song was okay. I'm good. I'm good. Um, just picturing myself as a dad holding up my daughter. Um, hey, um, it's great to be back with you this week. And um, uh, Larry did a phenomenal job uh, teaching last week while I was teaching in California. And um, really grateful for the word that he brought. And um, excited to be coming back with you. I uh, was at a retreat with our elders this weekend, and. Um, I'm just reminded of how good it is to lead in community with other people and specifically in community with people who love the Lord and who love this body and um, who are passionate about following his voice. And I know that not every pastor gets that joy, and so I don't take it lightly. Um, I love those guys, and, and they love this church, and I firmly believe that the best is yet to come. All right, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. And uh, we're on message four in a series that we're doing on uh, Jesus' parable that he told about the prodigal sons and a prodigal father. Prodigal just simply means recklessly lavish. And, and there's sons that are acting that way in the story. And, and then there's a father who in many ways epitomizes uh, a recklessly lavish approach to life. And so if you haven't been with us, the story begins with a younger son saying to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, and he goes away and he squanders it. It was depicted in the song that was just sung. He comes to his senses, and eventually he starts to make his way home, and that's where we're picking up the story today in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 17. If you have a Bible, feel free to follow along with me. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose, and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand. Bring shoes and put them on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son of mine, he was dead and he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. What's fascinating about this story is that if you were to hear it for the first time, as Jesus was telling it, you would never have expected the ending that Jesus puts on this story. Uh, we've been around it enough and we've heard it enough that now we expect the father to run. We expect the father's embrace. But every original listener to this story would have expected a different ending and they would have been uniform in the ending that they anticipated. See, because there was a, a ceremony, there was a, a tradition that they would have enacted if somebody like this younger son said to his dad, Dad, I want my share of this stuff. I wish you were dead. You're better off to me dead than you are alive. 
and taken it and then squandered it. There was, there was a way they handled things like that. It was a ceremony that they called kazaza. Will you say that with me? Kazaza. Not to be confused with the kazavas, okay? Kazaza, <laughs> right. And, and here's what it means. It literally means, in the Hebrew, it literally means a cutting off. And here's what they would do. If hypothetically this situation were to have taken place in a first century Jewish household and the younger son or son started to come back, somebody from the village would take a clay pot and they would go and they would meet this returner on the road and they would take the pot and, and they would break it at the feet of the person coming back. It was a picture it was a picture of, you don't mess with the patriarch of our village in that way. You don't, you don't disgrace the father and then think you can come home. It was a picture as the, the, the fractured pot would lie on the ground. It was the picture of, of the covenant, of the relationship that had been irreparably broken and irreparably damaged, and it was beyond repair. It was their way of saying, What's done is done. You've made your bed. You've got to lie in it, and you are not welcome here anymore. Well, the brilliant scholar Kenneth Bailey, who taught and studied in Lebanon for 40 years, he, he says this about this kazaza ceremony. He says, any Jew who loses his money among foreigners and then tries to return was ceremonially banished where a clay pot filled with burnt beans, and, and just in case you're wondering, no burnt beans, okay, was broken at the feet of the offender as a visual symbol that the community rejects him forever. This is done. This is finished. Uh, village societies were notorious for being ruthless about people who shamed the name of their village. In an honor-shame society, what the younger son does in throwing the father's money in his face and saying, I, I, I love your stuff more than I love you, and I'm going to go and live outside of your provision, outside of your care. For a son to do that in a patriarchal culture was one of the worst offenses that could have been perpetrated against the father. And so that was how it was handled. Okay, okay, okay. So could it be that the father in Jesus' story sits and anticipates and watches that road, not just to go and to shower his son with love and affection, but to cut off anybody who might be running towards him with a clay pot? to prevent somebody from his village, somebody well-intentioned, somebody who wanted to defend the honor of the patriarch of the village, as if to say, if you do this in our town, you get treated this way. I mean, people for sure certainly would have been waiting to do that. It's what they did. Is it possible the father runs? <laughs> pulls up his coat and runs towards his son, not with a clay pot in hand, but with open arms because he doesn't want anybody to get there before him. 
He doesn't want anybody to to break the pot at his feet to say, this is irreparably damaged and irreparably broken. It's fascinating. This story turns the, the preconceived or general notions of the way that we think about God on its head. See, because our typical view of God is that he's the vindictive father. He's the vindictive God that if you wrong him, you've got to pay. If you sin, you've got to pay for your sins. So people have wrestled. What do we do with the story? What do we do with the story that welcomes the son back and there's no penance to be paid? There's no penalty. There's just welcome. Where is the quote-unquote atonement in the story? It's a great question. Uh, um, uh, um, our, the, the nation of Islam would say that this is a story that cannot talk about how to come into relationship with God because there's no sins to be paid for. And here's where they get it wrong. There, there are sins that are paid for. They're paid for when the father divides literally his life or his property and gives them to his son. But more than that, when the father lifts up his robe, humiliating himself, runs towards his son, what he's doing is he's carrying the weight of the son's sin. He's accepting the shards of the fractured relationship and the rejected love. He's taking it fully and completely on himself and saying, I'll pay for that. And he runs to his son, not with a clay pot in hand to break at his feet, but with open arms as if to say, you are welcomed home. He echoes what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that many have said um, it's the great exchange that for our sake, He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He accepted the weight of a fractured relationship. He accepted the weight of all the wrong so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's just saying in theological terms what Jesus told the story about, that you and I are welcomed home. That God himself takes upon him the sin of fractured relationship in order to invite us back. And friends, will you look up at me for a second? This is the ground that we fundamentally stand on as followers of the way of Jesus. That we are welcomed back because of the grace of God. And we'll say it like this this morning. That our approach to God, the way that we run home, the way that we interact with him, the way that we walk with him on a daily basis is grounded in his already acceptance of us because he carried the weight of the fracture of relationship. So say it like this, there is absolutely nothing that stands between you and God this morning. That God does not look at you with a clay pot in hand and think about all the things that you've done wrong and he's just ready to go, it's done, it's gone too far, it's over, away. Um, As I've thought about my life 
and I've thought about this idea of being accepted by God. I have, I have two tapes that sometimes play in the back of my head. And, and here's, here's tape number one. God's going to accept me when I'm acceptable. So, so when I clean up my act enough, then I can, then I can go home. Right, this is, the, this is the narrative that plays in the back of our mind that says, all right, we've got to earn it. We've got to do enough so that we don't hear the sound of that clay pot hitting the ground that declares we are not enough. Here's the, here's the second one. The second tape that plays in the back of my mind is, man, if I... If I try to go home, or if I try to be back in relationship with God, or, or as a follower of Jesus, after I've wandered, if I try to come back, I know I'm going to be rejected. So one tape says, if God's going to accept me, I've got to be acceptable. The other tape says, I'll never be acceptable. And the narrative is one of guilt and shame and condemnation that we heap down on ourselves. And so we go, accepted, accepted by God? <laughs> Maybe someday. And then there's a lot of people that I get the chance to interact with, and they're going, ah, I, I, I don't need to be accepted by God. I'll, I'll make my own way. I'll do my own thing. Acceptance, I don't need it. Acceptance, I'll earn it. Acceptance, <laughs> never me. These are the three narratives that play in our mind. And Jesus dispels all of them when the father runs, picks up his robe, disgracing himself. That's exactly what he did in a first century culture. When he lifts up his robe to run, men did not run back in the day, okay? So now we can go out onto the Highline Canal on a Saturday morning. We see a lot of men running in short shorts, and that's, that probably should never be done either, okay? That's for free this morning, okay? Should still be ashamed. No, I'm just kidding. And so... Never back in that day. It was a humiliation. And so here's what we see. The father humiliates himself, disgraces himself to offer his son grace, to offer his son mercy. And here, here's the ground that you stand on, that by grace, you are accepted by the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are welcomed home. It's the fundamentally most true thing about us as followers of Jesus. So I want to give you four pictures today that I think will help maybe um, sort of tease out what that means to be accepted by God. I, I want to paint a picture of a coat, of a ring, of a shoe, and of a cow. And my hope is that as we talk about these things, they will make this picture all the more clear, because they're the, the things that Jesus uses to invite us more and more into this welcome, the open arms, rather than the shattered clay pot that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords extends to us. There are four pictures of the acceptance that this younger son gets that are ours as well. Here's the way it reads, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the what? Say it with me best robe. Okay, so pop quiz. In a patriarchal society, who owned the best robe? The father. Absolutely. 
Um, the, the father was second to no one in this culture, and so the best robe in the village would have only been owned by the upper echelon, the top, the peak of the village, and that was the father. So when he says, go get the best robe, he's saying, go get my robe. Go get it out of my closet. My best. You know the one. The one that I wear when we have the, the big festivals, the big parties. Go get that one and put it on him. You know, I'm just, I'm constantly fascinated by the fact that God is completely unlike me. Because the younger son was spending time in pig pens. The younger son was caring for pigs. Um, and, and here's the thing. If you start caring for pigs, if you work in a pig pen, what do you smell like? Pigs, right? And for a Jewish father, there would have been no smell as repulsive as the smell of a pig. And here's what the father does not do. The father does not do Hey, what I would do, which is, hey, if you could go grab a quick shower, right? If you could clean up a little bit. I mean, my kids, they love, especially my older son, he loves to snuggle with me while he's eating like a bag of Cheetos or chips. And eventually everything I'm wearing turns into his napkin. And I'm like, we have got to have a bubble here. A Holy Spirit bubble between you and I sitting on this couch, right? Because I don't want you to get your junk all over me. I don't want to get dirty. And the father in this story does the exact opposite. He sees him in his mess and he runs towards him in embrace. Here's what the coat teaches us. It teaches us that as the son comes home, he gets to carry the respect of his father. You think of him walking into the festival that's about to commence in his honor, wearing his dad's coat. It would have been a very clear message to everybody in the village. This is my son. This is my coat. He is carrying the weight of what it means to be my son once again. He's got this respect and he's restored. He's brought back. It's what the picture teaches us. Um, I think Jesus is pulling an image from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter, chapter 61, verse 10, listen to what Isaiah records. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he's clothed me with what? Garments of salvation, right? And he's covered me with what? robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's a phenomenal picture that if you are in Christ by faith, you are dressed in the king's robe. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. There are, there's, there are two approaches we can have to gaining acceptance from God. One is that we earn it, and here's the way we think about that. Once I get clean enough, I'll be accepted. Well, once, I, once, I, once I clean my act up, once I stop doing that, whatever that is, fill in the blank, that, that for you, once I stop doing that, then God will say to me, all right, Paulson, I've been waiting for you finally. You've come around. 
You've, you've gotten up one more, one more level on the ladder. Congratulations. Um, here, this just in. That is not the gospel. Okay? That is not, as followers of Jesus, what we believe. As followers of Jesus, what we believe is that we receive the robe from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that as we walk in that, we become more and more clean. It doesn't work the other way around. It's not clean up to get the robe. It's live in light of the reality that you wear it, and that it's yours, and that it's yours by grace alone. And it turns out that it's this grace that when it gets inside of us actually starts to change us. It starts to transform us. So the way that theologians would say it is that we are sanctified or we become more and more like Jesus on a daily basis in the exact same way that we're justified, by grace, by grace. Here's the way that the Apostle Paul says it. For sin will have no dominion over you. It won't, have, it won't have power over you in a way that just controls your life. Well, man, that's great news. Why, Paul? He's like, well, I'm glad you asked that. Since you're no longer under law, but under what? Grace. Yeah, yeah. Your life is going to start to reflect the freedom of Jesus because you wear the robe of the king. You don't get the robe as you become more clean. It's the thing that changes you. So in the story, God's acceptance does not excuse the son's sin. It eradicates it. It it fundamentally changes his approach to life. Uh, Here's the second thing. So uh, that's a coat. Second picture is of a ring. But the Lord said, oh, that's out of order. Here we go. A ring. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, and I'll put it on him, and put a, what, ring on his hand, right, a ring on his hand. See, in our culture, rings have, um, they have a metaphorical power or weight, right? They paint a picture, they, they communicate a covenant, but if you take a ring off, you're still married, right? They're just a picture of something that's true. Well, in the first century, rings carried both that, that sort of um, metaphorical weight. It was, it was both an illusion of something, a picture of something, but it also carried a very a literal weight because this, most likely, this ring was a signet ring. It was a ring that had the family emblem on it or family crest, and it was the way that people entered into covenants. It was the way that marriages were solemnized. It, it was the way that wills were enacted, that you would put a little bit of wax down and you'd put the ring on it, and it was the family seal. So the son comes home, and the father immediately says, get my robe and get the ring, as if to say, he's a part of this family again. He is fully reinstated and he represents us. I mean, somebody should have pulled this dad aside, shouldn't they? I mean, somebody should have said, like, I mean, we talked about it, like, that God didn't understand the principles of dare to discipline too well, right? That he just let his son wander away with all of his wealth and his property, and he didn't create any sort of um, hedges around how he would spend it, and he just blew it, and like, it's like, come on, dad, you know? 
And now we have this picture of the son who crashes the family car, comes home, and the dad gives him the keys again. And we're going, hey, shouldn't there be like a time period of proving yourself? Shouldn't there be some like testing that would go on to see if it's genuine, this repentance, this coming home, this speech? Shouldn't we at least make sure that he's telling us the truth? And what's fascinating is that from day one, there's no penance, there's no time of proving himself, there's no time of testing, there's only welcome and there's only arms wide open without the clay pot in hand. And so it is with us, friends. So it is with us that we think when we approach God, we're going to have to work off all of these things that have gone on in our life, all of those past regrets, the things that we wish we could undo, the things we wish we could redo, that somehow God's going to lay those out in front of us and go, all right, Paulson, let's get to work. And it's just not the case. That from day one, he's reinstated into the family, and from day two, he carries the name of the family. From day one, he carries the name. Here's the way that um, the book of Acts says it about the apostle Paul. It says, but the Lord said to him, this is after Paul's confronted with a, a light on the road to Damascus, and he's called to Jesus, and this is Jesus speaking to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Like, no time of testing. Just, he, Paul, you are invited back into the family. You've got the ring on your finger. And so do you. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. No second-class citizens. That, that's what Jesus is telling us, that regardless of how far gone you've been, regardless of how much pain is in your life, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And the irony of that is that when we hand over our weakness, when we hand over our brokenness, that Jesus uses that to shine through to the, light around, to the world around us. A coat, a ring... And shoes. The father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet. One of the most poignant parts of Rembrandt's portrait, The Return of the Prodigal, if you look at it, the younger son's shoes are just tattered and they're torn. Because he probably didn't have a second pair. And the distinguishing mark of a shoe is that a slave in this culture, a servant, a day laborer, which is what the younger son wanted to be upon returning to his father's household, it was, that was what his hope was, just put me to work and, and pay me by the day. It's the lowest level. Well, day laborers did not get shoes. Sons get shoes. Day laborers, they, they have bare feet. They, they are, it's a picture of, I'm not going to make that kind of investment in you. It was interesting. When I first heard Dr. Jeff Brodsky's story about why he goes barefoot, he goes barefoot because of the girls that he met on the trash heap outside of a city in Cambodia. 
And they were girls who'd been captured and were put to work as slaves. And their owners took their shoes so they couldn't run away. It's fascinating that when the father gives the son back his shoes, what he's saying is, I don't keep you here by restraint. I keep you here by relationship. And if you want to run away again, that's on you. But you run from my ferocious, reckless love that is intended to be the defining characteristic of your life. And here's what we see in the shoe. That he's both a son and that it's a marker of his identity. Upon returning, the son most likely thought that he'd just be a paid craftsman or, like I said, a a day laborer. That he'd be working for the father. I think a lot of us, we have this same view of God. That we become a follower of Jesus and he puts us to work. Or that he calls us to himself because he needs some things done. Um, the other day, my Friday, my day off, um, and my youngest son is off with me. And there was a, a toilet in our downstairs that we needed to replace. And so I said, all right, like, Reed, let's go. We're going to replace this toilet together, right? Um, because that's what men do, okay? <laughs> so I Googled, where is Home Depot, Okay. And then, uh, then I Googled how to install a toilet, okay? But my son's with me the whole time, right? And we walk in, and we pick it out, and we go, and we start to install it, and I give him some jobs. I'm like, hey, will you, will you open up those um, bolts, and will you, will you hand them to me? And he's like, absolutely, yes. And we get done with it, and we flush it for the first time, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord shines. And, and we're like, he's like, look what we did, and I had this moment of, man, that's, I think that's the way that my father feels about me. He doesn't need me. He invites me along with him. He, he invites me to be part of what he's doing. You do not work for God. You work with God. As he is in the process of restoring and redeeming, he is not the slave driver putting you to work. He's the loving father saying, join me in the work that I am doing. It's the picture of the the shoes on his feet. We are not slaves. We're sons. Listen to the way that Paul says it in the book of Romans. He says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery. That's not, that's not from Jesus. That, that's not the spirit that's in you But to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters with the Messiah, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. That's remarkable, is it not? It's amazing. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we would also be glorified with him, we walk with him in the valleys and the shadows and the mountaintops and the celebration, and he's with us in it all. Why? Look up at me. Because you are not a slave. You're a son or daughter of the king. A coat, 
a ring, shoes, and a cow. And bring the fattened calf. Most villages would only have had one. It was the prize, um, the culinary prize of the entire village. Kill it, he says, and let's eat and let's celebrate. For the son of mine, he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and, and now he is found. See, here's the thing. A goat would have been completely sufficient for a family. But the father does not want to throw a party for his family. He's throwing a party for his village. He's throwing a party for anybody who would want to come. Um, In the very first parable in Luke chapter 15, a shepherd loses a sheep, goes and finds it, and then calls together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I've found my sheep. In the second parable, a woman loses a coin and when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, I've found my coin. And when the father loses a son and his son comes home, he kills the fattened calf and he says, rejoice with me. My son was dead and now he was alive. He is lost and now he is found. It's a picture of celebration. It's a picture of gift. I don't know about you, but The the celebratory father is one of my favorite images of God in all of the scripture. Of a father who looks at his kids and says, I long for them to be home. I long for them to be found. And when they're found, I celebrate because he loves us. Uh, My wife and I, every time it's one of our kids' birthdays, we Uh, sneak in their room after they've gone to bed at night, the night before their birthday, and we decorate it with streamers and with balloons. And I can remember the first time we did this with Avery. And we went to bed that night, and we were both woken up by her going, oh, oh my goodness. And I can remember Kelly and I both woke up. And we're lying in bed just listening to her say, oh my goodness, over and over and over. And I'm like, that was worth all that stupid work the night before, man. (laughs) And when our God looks at us, here's what he says. He says, "I I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places. There is nothing that I've held back from you. I'm not holding out anything, not one ounce. I'm giving it to you. And his, his hope is that we would look back at him and go, oh my gosh. Like I, I should have been greeted on the road with the clay pot, but you welcomed me with open arms. And not only did you welcome me, but you reinstated me. And not only did you reinstate me, but now I get to represent you. And not only do I get to represent you, but you call me a son or daughter. And not only do you call me a son or daughter, but you celebrate me. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is so good. You could even call it gospel. You could call it good news. Just call it that because it's unbelievable. Friends, your name is engraved in the palm of his hands. We sung it this morning. That he sings over you. He rejoices over you. He is a good father who loves to hear you say, 
oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I can't believe you've been that good to me. This is the gospel. God does not wait to bless us until we prove ourselves faithful. He blesses us in order to prove himself faithful. And he is. And you are blessed. So if you're going, hey, what do I do, Ryan, what do I do with a coat, a ring, a shoe, a cow, and a pot? What am I supposed to do with that? Well, let me give you a few things as we sort of land the plane here. And I'm going to ask Aaron to come up, and he's going to lead us in one last uh, portion of a song as our benediction. But if you're asking, hey, what do I do with that? Let me just give you a few ways that this is working itself in me. Um, Here's the first thing. I, I think the first step into any of this, the first step into acceptance is to to trust that by faith we've been accepted and embraced by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That regardless of where you've been and regardless of what you've done and regardless of what tape plays in your mind about who God is and what God is like, can I tell you who God is and what God is like? He is the Father who pulls up his robe and runs, not with a clay pot in hand to throw at your feet and to say, you're a sinner, I'm done, but with open arms to say, my grace covers you. You gotta trust that, you guys. We've got to to build our foundation on the foundation of grace. Here's the second thing. If that's true, you've got to know that guilt and shame have absolutely no place in the life of one who is in Christ. Because as the scriptures really clearly say, there is therefore now no condemnation. I love that the words now, right now, today, and no, zero, zip, zilch are in there. No condemnation. And hey, here's the thing. If Jesus isn't holding any condemnation against you, you shouldn't hold any against yourself either. This is the pathway to freedom. You're accepted. You're loved. Guilt and shame have no place. Three, will you understand that the way God grows us is through understanding his grace? The the gospel is both the anchor that holds us and the engine that moves us. We don't grow outside of it. We don't grow further than it. Just more and more and more, we grow as we realize we're accepted, that we're loved, that our names are engraved in the palm of his hands, that he sings over us. That is the method of growth in the Christian life. Fourth, I think the story asks us a question. What are we going to do with our pot? What are we going to do with the clay pot that we hold? Do we, do we throw it at the feet of people who've wronged us? You've gone too far. I've got to defend my honor. Or is it grace is sufficient and grace is enough? 
as a church, as, as a church corporate, capital C church, it breaks my heart that I think the way people picture the church is, hey, give me another one of those clay pots. You're outside. You, you can't come in. Unclean. You've done too much. And, and it's, that is not the disposition of our Father, so let's let it not be the disposition of our church too. Instead of looking for clay pots, let's say, man, our arms are open because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has welcomed me. So who the heck am I to think I can throw a pot at somebody's feet? Come on. And finally, finally, man, let's be people who rest and enjoy the embrace of our Father. Because friends, when we believe we're accepted, a coat, a ring, a shoe, and a cow, we can finally stop earning and we can start enjoying. This is a picture of the gospel. The father leaves his home to meet his estranged son on the road that's incarnation. He humiliates himself and absorbs the wrong of his son's betrayal, that's atonement, so that he can bring us home and once again make us part of his family, that's salvation, that we would be raised from death to life. This is resurrection. Friends, this is our story. Let's receive it and let it be the story that we give. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing one last song together. Jesus, I thank you for the welcome that you extend to us. May it fill our souls. May we rest in it and may it shape us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.